he was talking to Quandre Diggs about how when you're playing with Jamal Adams, you better be ready because he's going to bring the energy every single day in camp. For, for Portland fans, they couldn't ask for a more humble, down-to-earth superstar. Damian Lillard is, is one of the best athletes I've ever covered, not just because he's so good at the game of basketball. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Locked In Podcast. My name is Ani. My name is Shree. We got a great episode for you guys here today. We have AJ McCord, sports anchor for KOI and 6 up in Portland. She covers all things sports in the Pacific Northwest, and she's gratefully decided to join us for this episode. We're going to get right into it. Enjoy. Um, so my name is AJ McCord, and I am a sports reporter and anchor at Coin6, which is the CBS station in Portland. Um, I cover pretty much everything Pacific Northwest. I was at the Timbers game last night. I'll cover the Blazers game today, and then I head up to Seattle for the Seahawks training camp tomorrow. So this is a really good three-day snapshot of um, kind of everything everything all the sports and teams that that we cover I do a lot of um, features a lot of in-depth stories um, and a lot of social media I also have a series like an outdoor series um, in the summertime that is designed to help people understand how they can get outside and and enjoy I, I think Oregon's one of the prettiest places to live and so to to try and show them how they can get outside and, and enjoy that. So that's my AJ in Action series um, this summer. But it all comes back to just being a storyteller, telling other people's stories, um, sharing a little bit of the athletes that these fans adore um, in a way that maybe they don't normally get to. So, um, yeah, there's my elevator pitch for you. Sweet. Wait, quickly about Seahawks training camp. What's the buzz around Jamal Adams? Because – I mean, watching him, he's just a transcendent player, but how? Do, what are they saying about like his fit in the Seahawks defense? Man, everyone lights up when they talk about Jamal Adams. Shaquille Griffin was telling me the other day that he just brings like a different energy to camp. Like he, he was talking to Quandre Diggs about how when you're playing with Jamal Adams, you better be ready because he's going to bring the energy every single day in camp and uh, you got to be ready to match it. So Every single person that I talk to has just been stoked that he is on the Seahawks, and I'm I'm really excited to see him in person. Sweet, yeah, I know a lot of people are excited about that team this coming year. But we we wanted to start with kind of your early career. So we did some research, and we we found out that like you worked for the San Diego Padres early in your career, and you know you got to work alongside Hall of Famer Trevor Hoffman, one of the probably one of the most, the Padres' most iconic players of all time you know, one of the best relief pitchers ever. And, you know, with him being your, your childhood role model, was there anything you took away from that experience, like both either personally, professionally? And at what point does the feeling of being starstruck kind of become a normal thing for you? Well, it wasn't normal when I was like 19 years old and had that internship, that's for sure. Um, the internship was with Dick Enberg, who is one of those guys that should always be mentioned when you talk about the greats of sports broadcasting right alongside Vin Scully, um, Bob Costas. I mean, all those guys. And um, he was, 
he, he really gave me my first shot. He gave me pretty free reign to learn from whomever I wanted to um, in the booth. So <clears throat> my job that season, I got to pretty much every I – I think I might have missed one or two home games because I was still in college and had to go to school every once in a while. Um, but I was supposed to get to every home game about three hours before the game, and Dick would always beat me there. And then we'd go over, like, storylines for the game. He'd send me down to the clubhouse to talk to players, find out what was going on. I, would, I was very fortunate that season Jenny Kavnar was the uh, Padres sideline reporter. And she's amazing. She taught me so much. She's with the Rockies now and doing play-by-play, just shattering ceilings everywhere. But Trevor Hoffman and also Tony Wynn, I got to work alongside that season. And I was a a football girl at heart. That was like my first passion as far as pro sports went. But going to Padre games in San Diego was just as much a part of my childhood. And I was there when, I think it was when Tony got his, or Trevor got his 500th save. I mean, like those milestones, you know, I was like eight or nine or whatever it was. And so I remember those milestones from a, sta- from a fan perspective. And then you get to meet these guys and it's always kind of nerve wracking to meet the players that you, you know, really, really like, because what if they're, what if they're mean? What if they're different? And with Trevor and with Tony, they were both absolutely amazing. And they were exactly the same people in person to, um, you know, to who you were or to, to who, to you. And at that time I was a 19 year old intern, um, as they were to, you know, another hall of famer. So it was, it was really fun. I think, I think now I'm, I'm maybe a little bit past the, um, starstruck phase, I suppose, but like the first time I interviewed LeBron in person, there was a moment of like, oh, this is, this is LeBron James. I need to be on my best game, you know? So it's a little bit less of like starstruck and a little bit more of like, you realize you need to meet the moment because the opportunity you've been given is, is pretty special. Is, is Petco Park one of the best parks in the majors? Because I've, I've heard it's really great. I haven't had the chance to go yet, but. Yeah, I love Petco Park. Um, Sounds like maybe the Padres are living up to how cool the park is this year for the first time in a long time. But um, yeah, Petco Park is unbelievable. It's, it's beautiful. They've got that Western metal building. And, but when I was going to games, um, I guess that internship was in Petco. But when I was going to games as a fan, it was Jack Murphy Stadium. And that was not, <laughs> that was not quite as good. So Petco is amazing, though. Yeah, it's beautiful. So you, you also grew up in, in San Diego, you went to college in San Diego, and you, you worked for the Chargers. So is it safe to assume that you're, you're a Chargers fan? Uh, I was a diehard bleed blue and gold Chargers fan until they decided to shatter my heart into a million pieces and move to Los Angeles. And now I can honestly tell you that if I did not work in the industry, I would not cover, I would not know what was going on in the team with the team at all. Sad. I know it's very sad. Um, and LA doesn't want that. What we don't have to get into that. We don't have this is that's another podcast. Um, <laughs> but yes, I was a diehard Chargers fan. So after that internship with Dick, I got to meet some of the guys at NBC Seven, which is obviously the local uh, NBC affiliate in San Diego. Derek Togerson and Jim Lazlovic and Laz played for 
the Chargers and the Lions and uh, Penn State. And so just wonderful, wonderful people. And that was where I really learned the ins and outs of kind of sports broadcasting from the local news perspective. Derek would take me everywhere with him. Um, we covered so many things from from Chargers Chargers girls swim calendar reveals to Chargers games to uh, Padres. I mean, I'm trying to think of some of the crazy things we went on. Marshall, uh, uh, some San Diego State stuff with uh, Strasburg. I mean, we were everywhere. And so that was great. I, I really enjoyed learning from them. And that was really probably where I learned the most that helps me with what I do now, if that makes sense. No, definitely. Yeah, I, I'm a huge Chargers fan. So I was just wondering because you had the opportunity to cover Herbert when he was at Oregon and now he got drafted in the first round by the Chargers. So I was wondering how you felt about that, about him going to the Chargers, being a former Chargers fan, I guess, now, as, as, as I can say. So do you feel like it was a good fit? You, you've covered Herbert a lot and you obviously must, must know him and have watched him in person a lot better than, you know, me and Shri have, so. Totally, yeah. Um, Justin is... Justin could be one of those really, really, really special NFL talents. He works incredibly hard. I think he worked really hard, not just on his field, like on the field skills between his junior and senior year, but also his leadership skills. Um, I just feel like his growth personally was so evident between last year at Oregon and then this, his final, I guess, two years ago at Oregon and then last year at Oregon when he led them to the Rose Bowl and was running all over the place like he's freaking Michael Vick. Um, so that was that was really cool to see and I think Justin has all the pieces necessary to become a franchise quarterback and for the Chargers that's what they need. I mean, um with Philip Rivers leaving and going to Indy, they are they are ready to welcome in their next you know, their next franchise. And Justin Herbert is that solid, stable, steady dude. And he wants to be a charger. He has that note that he wrote when he was, I think, eight or 10, um, saying that he was going to play for the chargers someday. And now he's there. So I don't think he's, in fact, I know he's not the kind of person who's going to be chasing, chasing um, money or glory. He wants to be that steadfast person for a franchise. And the fact that he landed with the chargers, I think sets him up very, very well. That's good news for the Chargers. And I'm, I'm glad you said the thing about him transitioning between his junior and senior year and really, you know, be blossoming into that, that star player senior year because me and Shree went to the Red Box Bowl uh, in 2018. End of 2018. I'm sorry. I saw him at his junior year. Yeah, it was the most boring game I've ever watched in it real life. It was so boring. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, after watching that game and then seeing the Chargers draft him, I didn't really keep up with him super closely in a senior season. So I was very skeptical, but watching him on hard knocks and hearing you and other, you know, people that cover Justin Herbert talking and singing praises, including Tom Telesco, Chargers GM, you know, I, I, I feel confident now. So thank you for giving me that confidence. Uh, you should. I mean, he looked him in the Rose bowl, him in the PAC 12 championship game. It, it's unbelievable. I think it's what outside of ASU, right? That's the only game that Oregon really faltered last year mm -hmm. other than, um, their first one, I guess. And that man, that Auburn one was so close. So, yeah. I mean, Justin Herbert is, is ready to be ready to be the franchise guy and, and watching him at Oregon last year was just so fun. Even you think about two years before that, right. Was the year he, he hurt his collarbone. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, he's he's gonna be he's gonna be great. He's Chargers fans. You may be in someone else's city, but you have a great quarterback. So you've also covered the SEC while in Arkansas, and now you're covering two Pac-12 teams, the Ducks and the Beavers. Uh, so the Pac-12 recently voted to postpone all sports to 2021 because of COVID-19 reasons, uh, but the SEC said that they're going to power through, and they went ahead and created an in-conference schedule, and they said they're going to play football this fall. So having covered both those conferences, lived in both those areas, the South and the West Coast, do you feel like there's a really big culture difference between the two that may account for the fact that the Pac-12 was a bit more cautious in its approach to come back to sports and push it to the spring, whereas the SEC said, no, we're going full steam ahead, football has to be played this fall? Yeah, I mean, I think anybody who has spent time in in the South versus the West Coast will will be the first one to tell you it's it's very different culturally. That's not that's not a knock on one place or the other. That's just, it's just different. Um, and when you think about the states in the SEC, Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, um, Georgia, I mean, a few of those have pro teams, but living in Fayetteville, everyone lived, breathed, and died by the Razorbacks. and that was it. And so I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons why the SEC is playing college football or is going to try and play college football this fall. And the PAC 12 is not trying to play college football this fall. Um, but I do think that while Autzen and Reeser can be really, really, really special places, especially for big games, especially for rivalry games, um, there is something about the SEC and football that I remember going to my first Razorback game and they called the hogs. And I looked at my new boss, I was in the press box and I was like, what is this? Like what (laughs) just happened? There is something that you just, you cannot, um, it's just different. It's just, it's just special. It is, it is a way of life. Um, So like I said, I think there's a lot of reasons why, why one conference is choosing to try and push forward and another conference is taking a step back. But um, if you were to have asked me to guess between the SEC and the Pac-12, who would be playing and who would be not, this is exactly how I would have guessed it. I'm glad you said that about the SEC because, you know, for a lot of those markets, like the the college football programs are their only sports teams in the area. Exactly. So, you know, their their fandom is like unlike anything I've ever seen. And yeah, and, and their economies. I mean, it's not just, it's not just fans. It's, it's those Saturdays. It's those businesses. It's no one would know where Tuscaloosa, Alabama was if it wasn't for <laughs> Alabama. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I a hundred percent agree with your culture thing. I mean, I grew up on the West coast in the Bay area and I went to Texas for undergrad and going to my first UT game was really like shocking. Like, is this how they treat football in Texas? Like, I mean, Texas is not in the SEC other than A&M, but you know, in all other aspects, it is you know, the football state. And I think, yeah, I 100% agree with you that culture change is something that was, you know, scary to me, scary for me to witness in the sense like how how, how much they treated. But yeah, I, I think I, I I agree with you that if you were to predict, this is how it was. But I just was wondering based on your perspective. But yeah. No, so that, that kind of ties into what I wanted to ask you because recently, you know, NBA Twitter legend Adrian Wojnarowski, he, he kind of tweeted that no superstar meant more to their market than Dame Lillard does in Portland. And... 
like Ani said, like we're based in the San Francisco Bay Area, so we're we're kind of spoiled with sports teams all around us. You know, baseball, we have the A's <laughs> and the Giants, we have the Warriors, and you know how they've been for the past like five, six years. And obviously with football, like the Raiders are out now, but we have we still have the Niners, we have the Earthquakes for MLS, and you know, there's just no shortage of teams for us. But as someone who's, you know, based in the Pacific Northwest, mainly in the Portland area, what have you kind of noticed about the impact of some of these teams on fans and how fans tend to embrace players like Dame Lillard, players like, you know, CJ McCollum? How how are they different as players in small markets than maybe someone in a larger market like, say, the Bay Area? That's a good question. Um, so, I mean, I, I think for for Portland, Woj, was, Woj is dead on. There is no – there's no player – who is more important to their market than Damian Lillard. And that is not because he is just a franchise superstar who casually drops 61 because he's upset that he missed two free throws, but it's because of how much he invests in this city on a personal and professional level. You think about the guys that he has been trying to woo to come to the Portland trailblazers for the last three to four years, right? When Mello got here, we all heard how much Dame was like, I tried to get him here three years ago. Hassan Whiteside, <laughs> same thing. Kent Bazemore, same thing. Pau Gasol. I mean, you go down the list of the – and not all of those guys worked out, obviously, but um, you go down the list, and Damian Lillard has been the best advocate for, for big-name guys joining the Portland Trailblazers that they could have asked for in the last seven years. He's very happy here. I was talking to his uh, brother a while ago. And you just don't re even really realize the impact his family and his extended family are having on the city too. When he came here, he said he, he's only been, you know, it was like his mom and his sister, I think, came with him, two family members. Well, now there's like, there's Lillard's all over Portland. There's his brother, right. there's his brother's family, there's his cousins, and they're all doing amazing things in the community. Houston Lillard is a first year head coach at one of the high schools. His fiance owns a nail salon. His, um, his other cousin helps with an academy. I mean, it's just, or Houston helps with an academy. But you just think about how much this family has invested in the city of Portland. And um, like I said, personally and, and professionally. And for, for Portland fans, they couldn't ask for a more humble, down-to-earth superstar. Damian Lillard is is one of the best athletes I've ever covered, not just because he's so good at the game of basketball, but because he is so kind. He answers every question. He's always thoughtful. He always has the time. He views even reporters as humans first, just the way that he wants to be viewed. And I think that's something that cannot be understated. Well, yeah, you actually kind of answered my next question because I was going to ask you, like, you've done so many interviews with Dame and CJ and, you know, with right now, especially with the with their run in the bubble and, you know, the playing game getting to the eighth spot, people have been talking about his leadership, how he's one of the best leaders in sports and, you know, their perseverance, like Dame's right now playing with that dislocated finger, CJ playing with the fractured back. And I was going to ask you, like, you, do you get that feeling talking to them off the court that they're just these, like, special guys that, you know, you can't really put words on what they mean off the court. But, you know, you said so much on that already. Oh, absolutely. And I think when when Dame dislocated his finger, it was like, 
I have no doubt he's playing. <laughs> like, he dislocated it. And I was like, unless that thing is broken in, like, four spots and he's incapable of forming that finger to manipulate the basketball, he will be playing in game three or whatever that was ahead of time. So, um, yeah, they're, they're incredible. They're, and CJ is the same way. CJ is always really respectful and um, – and both of them have been that kind of grit it, grit it out, tough it out. And what's really cool about their dynamic is they're, they trust each other so much. And um, mm-hmm. like, not just on the court, but again, off the court as, as men, they're, they're great friends. Like when um, Damian Lillard's cousin passed away in quarantine and, and CJ um, he was Dame's personal chef. He was CJ's personal chef. He was Anthony Simons. And I believe Yusuf Nurkic's uh, personal chef and CJ came over and, and prayed with him, prayed with Dame, uh, cried with Dame and shared that grief. And so when you share that burden of grief, it's just like you or I sharing something, something traumatizing that you go through is you become closer to the people who helped you get through it. Right. And so that's just one example, one recent example, but these guys um, are so, so connected and, and trust each other so much. There's like, they both Damian Lillard in particular is a superstar. CJ McCollum is a star in his own right, but neither of them feel the need to one up each other, to one up their teammates, to prove that like when the game is on the line, I've got to be the one to take it they're both looking around for who has the hot hand. I think about that third quarter in game three and they fed Carmelo Anthony like he hadn't eaten in weeks. Right. And that's because right. Melo had the hot hand. And so both of these guys are so unselfish and also have such great basketball IQ that they can recognize, Hey, it's, it's not actually my time, right? Like my shots aren't falling the way they want to mellows are let's get it to mellow let's get it to gary trent jr let's set up plays for these guys let's get it to nurk you know so i think that's something that that also is is just really has been really cool to watch unfold um in dame and cj's relationship no i mean i think this this blazers team really feels like a family in a sense especially since damis has come onto the scene and i feel like dame and cj have a very good bond and even bringing in mellow a lot of people doubted he would fit in, but they kind of brought him into that fold. And you see now with, with Nurkic not playing until the bubble, but even now really folding in well to that team. So, I mean, be, being a small market team and kind of operating like a family, do you feel like that's what's making this Blazers team right now be more successful than pundits thought they'd be, even maybe than some of the Blazers players thought they'd be coming into the bubble, having sort of a, a very far shot of making the playoffs. But now giving the Lakers the, the the number one seed in the Western Conference and having LeBron as their, their star player, you know, giving the Lakers a run for their money. Do you think that family aspect of the team and the overall organization, maybe even the whole city and the state of Oregon behind them is kind of giving them that push that they need? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because um, there's always a time in sports when it comes down to who wants it more. Right. Like in those in those hard fought games, that's what it feels like, is that there's always that moment where it's like, okay, they're either going to dig in or they're going to give up or or not even give up. That's the wrong word to use. But like they're going to dig in or they're they're not going to have what like enough left in the tank to do that. And for the Blazers, that trust 
means that if one guy, like whether it's Lillard or Mello or CJ or Nurk, if it's one guy who makes the decision and can say on that next possession, I'm going hard, scores a tough layup, takes a charge, whatever it is, then all of a sudden the other four guys on the court are like, okay, I got to find it in me too because my teammate's still laying it out on the line and I need to find that extra motivation. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I think one other thing that I always loved watching the Blazers in the playoffs was the fact that the Rose Garden used to come to life, especially in the playoffs. I think it's one of the best atmospheres in the NBA, kind of intimate, you know, really feels like you have the whole city of Portland kind of stuffed in there. Uh, but the, the the one sad thing about the bubble, which you kind of talked about in your Instagram live with, with Chris Haynes, is the fact that there is no home court advantage. And, it, you know, the one thing I love about sports is the fact that fans can really sway aspects of the game. And I, I know that, you know, although the Blazers were the eight seed coming in, they had one less home game than the Lakers would if it went to seven. I think the fact, if, if the Blazers did play in the Rose Garden, I think that atmosphere would have been so electric especially during playoff time, that the Blazers would have easily won every single game there. So I'm just wondering, you know, there's no home court advantage, which kind of sucks for the city of Portland and just Blazers, the fans, and also the Blazers in general. I think they really feed off of that. So do you feel like if there were, like, there were home games and, you know, we were able to play in the Rose Garden, that would have kind of been a turning point in the series? Or do you feel like, you know, regardless of home court advantage or not, fans or not, Dame, CJ, this Blazers team is going to turn it up to the next level regardless? Well, I think two parts there is, you know, I've, I've covered some amazing games in, in Moda and also been, you know, lucky enough to travel to um, Oracle, to the Thunders home stadium or home court, to the Nuggets. Um, and, and I agree, there is something very special about Moda. And maybe it's because it, it kind of had an OKC vibe in the sense that, again, um, you know, the Thunder is the only pro team for OKC. Um, so similar to Portland. But I think if you're talking about home courts, then you also have to talk about the fact that maybe the Blazers, you know, Staples is no <laughs> Staples is no slouch either. And so you have to talk about the fact that the, the Blazers got out of playing potentially four or five games there, right? Or, yeah. So... I think that um, home court plays both ways for this series in particular, um, which Chris and I talked about. It's, it's just different playing with virtual fans than it is having to like step over Beyonce courtside because the ball went out of bounds. <laughs> That's just a little bit, a little bit different. But that being said, I do think this Blazers team is pretty uniquely set up to not care about um, not having a home court or an away court for that matter, because, you know, when I was talking to Damon CJ, once this, once the plans started coming out for the bubble, they were both like, you know, I played at Weber state and Lehigh. So for me, this is going to be like a throwback to my college days because there weren't people, you know, they didn't have the fans that Mello had at Syracuse or Gary Trent had at Duke or, um, you know, these guys who went to these big-time basketball schools, Damon CJ are these mid-major dudes who have a chip on their shoulder and have proved many people wrong before. So I think they have learned potentially much earlier than a lot of NBA stars that how to find that, how to be, 
how to be internally motivated as opposed to letting the circumstances help them get motivated. So is, is Staples Center that that big of a deal in terms of home court advantage? Because I've always thought of it like, yeah, you know, the, the celebrities are there. Jack's there in the front row. Beyonce is there in the front row. But I, I just thought that like the the craziness of the fans in Portland and just the intimacy of the stadium would would lend itself to become a much more hostile adva- like advantage for the, the away team in, the, in that situation compared to Staples, which I think... In, in my opinion, and you know, I'm, I'm asking you because I've never been to a playoff game there. It kind of seems like it's all about the glitz and the glamour and maybe the fans aren't as loud or as passionate as, not to say Lakers fans aren't loud or passionate, but, you know, maybe the real fans get bought out by, you know, the, the rich people in LA compared to the sort of family aspect of Portland. That, that That's the question I was kind of trying to ask you because I have never been to, you know, games in either of the arenas. That's a good question. Um, and I think... I've, I've never been to a playoff game at Staples, so I don't know that I can um, give like a for sure answer to that. But I think sort of that glitz and glam that you were talking about, like I feel like maybe a sort of similar comparison was Oracle last year with the Warriors because, um, you know, those ticket prices were crazy expensive. But um, uh. but Dame was the first one to be like, you know, the the – quote unquote, real Oakland fans um, can't afford that, right? And so you don't have the, the diehards is there, there necessarily as much. Um, and it did feel like, I mean, Moda is a very special, when Damian Lillard hit that shot over Paul George last year, my ears were ringing for several days afterwards. It was so loud. And um, same when they won that quadruple overtime or whatever it was against the nugget so yes I think Moda is super super special but I think um maybe not for guys like Damon CJ but and certainly not Mello but you think about potentially Gary Trent Jr. Anthony Simons like potentially with Staples Center that glitz and that glam and that Hollywood sheen if you will I guess um had the potential to be intimidating I suppose is a better word I think Playing in Staples Center in and of itself is intimidating, whether it's actually because it's louder or if it's just because it's Staples Center and you do have Beyonce sitting front row. (laughs) You're actually reading my mind because I was going to ask you, like based on the home court stuff, like we've seen so many players in the bubble just kind of like even if they were established, like we've seen Michael Jordan, TJ Warren, we've seen... Like, so many players across the league just put up career numbers in the bubble. And one of those guys, like, Gary Trent was playing well throughout the season, like, you know, establishing himself as part of the rotation. But what he did in those those eight games and the playing game was remarkable. Like, I I like I like knew Gary Trent, but I didn't know Gary Trent before <laughs> that. So did, did you see that coming, or did you expect kind of, like, with the neutral site, these players to, you know, just really lock in and, you know, like Gary Trent became one of the leading three-point shooters in the bubble. That was remarkable. So I, I didn't see it coming. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> well, and I think, I think, I wouldn't say, I mean, I'm not like, I'm not trying to say that I like saw it coming, that this, that the bubble was going to be like Gary Trent Jr.'s space of dominance. But I think to some extent, Gary Trent Jr. is one of the most quietly determined players that I have covered like he doesn't talk about what he does in fact he protects what he does to the point where he's like I mean I talked to him I think in like April maybe May and I was like oh so what have you been doing to you know keep up with the game and he was like I can't tell you and I was like 
I, you don't have to give away any secrets. I just meant like, are you, are you working out? Do you have access to a hoop? And he's like, I have tools that are helping me get better. And I was like, okay, sounds good. You know, so that is like Gary Trent Jr. And he has wanted to be an NBA star like his dad since he was five years old. He said, he told me at five years old, he and his dad had a conversation and his dad asked him, do you want to be ordinary or extraordinary? And at that moment, everything in his life became about being extraordinary on the basketball court. He calls Kevin Garnett, uncle Kev. So when you have players like an NBA dad and Kevin Garnett pouring into you at an early age, and then you also decide that you want it for yourself Gary Trent coming onto the scene was only a matter of time, whether it was in the bubble, whether it was next season. And we sort of got a glimpse of it in, I think that was January or February. Uh, I think it was February, right before, right before the league uh, shut down. He had a massive game against the Thunder. And we kind of jokingly, although now it probably is not very funny to call it this, but at the time it was kind of jokingly called the flu game because he was really sick. He was getting, he was getting IVs. He was getting hydration. I mean, it was like, you know, he was not feeling well and he goes out there and has one of the best games, the the best game of his career to that point. And so I think it was only a matter of time that Gary Trent found his, his space in the league. And it, it just happened to be, happened to be in the bubble. Yeah. It's awesome that they found that three and D wing. Cause I know, Harkless left Aminu's not there so it's kind of nice to have that other guy who can just fill that role perfectly and I think he's no disrespect to Aminu and Harkless I think Gary Trent Jr. has so much more upside than those two at least for the next like five to six years so I'm well he's only two years to... in so it feels like feels like you don't know if this is you don't know where his ceiling is yet right exactly so I think that, that's part of it yeah and I think he makes the game easier for Damon CJ and some of the guys around him but, oh yeah, because he drains threes like, like nobody's business, and so you can't leave Gary Trent on the perimeter unguarded any more than you can leave Melo unguarded in a corner three. I mean, Melo's been making that shot since two thousand and three, and yet people are we leaving him open. I have I have no doubt when it's like three minutes left that if Melo's taking that like right corner three, it's going in. Like there's just no doubt anymore. <laughs> so we have we have one last question for you. Sorry, we took up so much time, but we you're great. We just, this is awesome. Thanks. Yeah, we discussed in an we discussed in an earlier episode. Like we we were discussing what what are some of the hardest sports not only to practice and compete in but like achieve consistent levels of success in. And gymnastics was in our top three, and I think we had boxing and water polo. We those three in some order. But as someone who did gymnastics for nearly sixteen years, can you could you like walk us through a typical day of training and what you think are some of the more underappreciated like aspects of the sport? Yeah, you're really, really throwing it back to my my glory days here. Um, yeah, so I, I started gymnastics. Like, I was – my mom put me in those, like, mommy and me classes when I was, like, two or three. Um, so I started doing that and then um, just really fell in love with it, fell in love with the idea of being able to flip all over the place, um, fell in love with just, like, moving, I guess. And – um I was like nine or ten and gymnastics is such an interesting sport because the shelf life is so small right like 
at 16, you are old. <laughs> you are, right. you are past your prime for the most part, which is just really crazy to think about. Um, when you just think about being 16 as, as like a normal, you know, teenager. Um, but when I was like nine or 10, I was when I really decided that I wanted to try and be competitive. And, um, again, I, I, I have this, I, I also have a childhood note somewhere. I'm sure my mom has it that said, you know, my life plan was I was going to go to the Olympics for gymnastics. And then I believe I was going to play in the NFL. And then I think I was going to round it out by being in major league baseball. And then I don't remember, there was something else after that, but so, so that was my dream. But at like nine or 10, I, I, I was almost, I was past the point where I could really be legitimately dreaming about the Olympics. Um, that being said though, I, I went competitive anyway and, and really enjoyed it, but it was like, I mean, it, it was, it was my childhood. My husband always teases me about the movies that I haven't seen and the music that I haven't listened to from that era because I was at the gym all the time. It was, it was at least Monday through Friday. Most of the time it was Monday through Saturday during competition season. It was like, you were at, you know, you were at a comp for at, at a meet for eight hours on a Saturday and you, you competed for like three minutes. Um, so it, it really was, it was my life. I would go to school. I would, my, my grandpa would pick me up from school. I would go straight to practice. Oftentimes I was leaving school early. I don't think, I don't think I, I think I did PE my freshman year because I kind of wanted to in high school, but I always had those like PE exemptions for, for club sport athletes, um, that they gave you in high school. And, and I was there until nine o'clock most nights. I think we practiced from 3.30 to 8.30, something like that. You had like a 10-minute break for dinner. Um, and that was, that was my life from 10 to 16 was when I finally was like, you know, I want to see what this whole high school thing is about. And I'm, I'm not, not going to make the Olympics. Um, by that point, I'd hurt my back several times. And so competing in college wasn't really something I was interested in doing. Um, but it was, it was my life for, for much of middle school and, and high school. And, and I loved it. I, I, I wouldn't take it back. Um, I don't think, <laughs> but it definitely, definitely touched many areas of my life that a lot of the lessons that I've learned today come from, come from that time of gymnastics and come from the lessons that I learned about teamwork, about self-discipline, about motivation, about, um, you know, even, even my job is, is I, I present, right? Like I, I present information, I report information and, and regardless of what's going on in my personal life, no one who watches on TV will know that. And I think that skill was honed from being a gymnast because no matter what was going on, as soon as your music started on floor, you got to smile, you got to put on the show. So um, yeah, I learned a lot from gymnastics and, and I loved it, but um, definitely feel it in my knees and my back these days. What's crazy is that all those goals you set, you know, like the Olympics and playing for Major League Baseball, like then the NFL, like you ended up covering all of those things. So props to you for you know, <laughs> getting there in some way. That's remarkable. Like, you have such I a know. crazy background. So we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. It was awesome. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You guys have 
have great questions and, and very personal. It felt like, yeah, you guys did a great job anytime. Thank you again to AJ for joining us. You know, it was great hearing about her work with the Seahawks, the Blazers, the, both the Oregon college football teams. You know, it, she has such a diverse background covering so many different sports, and it was great to kind of get in, get some more insight into that. But stay tuned for more episodes and more NBA bubble coverage, some MLB coverage. We're going to be dropping an NFL season preview soon for both the AFC and NFC. So we're going to have that on the horizon. And yeah, Ani, anything to add? Check out our social media. We're on Instagram, podcast.lockedin. And we have a website, lockedinpod.com. So check those out for latest updates just to stay in touch with us and stay in tune with what we're doing. But once again, thank you for listening to another episode of the Locked In Podcast. And as always, stay safe and wash your hands. Wash your hands, people. And wear those masks when you go outside. If you live in, if you live in Fremont or anywhere where there's wildfires, please stay safe. Yep. Peace, guys.